Our scripture tonight is Obadiah, verses 19 through the rest of the book, verse 21. Obadiah 19 through 21. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. Obadiah, Obadiah 19 through 21. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Zion, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Polycarp, the senior pastor in Smyrna in the second century, refused to confess Caesar as God, and when martyred for it, his last words were, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Before that, as we touched on this morning, Paul the Apostle was once among those persecutors of God's people until the risen Christ appeared to him, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and would eventually come full circle, dying a martyr's death in Rome for the Lord Jesus himself. Indeed, All of the apostles were martyred for their faith except John, but John also suffered for Christ. Tradition tells us that he once was barely survived being boiled in in oil. Hebrews 11 tells us before that, many Old Testament saints were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And to this day, the tension between God's people and the world remains. In 2022, Advocacy Group Open Doors reported that at least 360 million Christians experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. And they estimated that nearly 6,000 Christians were killed for their faith. We can be thankful that saints do not always face this kind of regular or harsh persecution. But indeed, some in this room have been face-to-face with the senseless rage of, uh, directed against God and his people, and all of us have felt some tension of living with increasingly anti-Christian societal pressures. Well, as we finish the vision of Obadiah this evening, God's persecuted people receive a final word of encouragement. Verse 19 begins, Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines and shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The idea of possession here links back up to verse 17. So we know that Obadiah is speaking of the totality of the people of the house of Jacob. That is, from the scattered peoples of the Negev, or the southern lands, 
to the scattered peoples of the Shephelah, that is, the lowlands, those who are the rightful heirs of all that God promised to the house of Jacob would once again, verse 17, possess their own possessions. After the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has poured out his judgment on all nations and humiliated them to the point they would never again be the thing to be feared by Israel, the whole of God's people will regain the whole of their birthright, including all the promises of their inheritance. Now, some of us may feel like here, man, Obadiah has been wearing his heart on his sleeve thus far in a deeply relatable and emotional book, and at the climax of all this, we get a geography lesson. Geography was a class that we struggled to stay awake in, and even if it was a morning class and we had a good night's sleep and a fresh cup of coffee, how could Obadiah do this to us? Why wouldn't our intern at least preach this in the morning service? Well, fear not, Obadiah is still Obadiah, who has led us through the emotional wrestling with separating the humility and conviction we experience when our father disciplines us as children from the humiliation that the world will face when we are vindicated from unjust persecutions. The prophet is the same Obadiah who taught us how to hope in vindication without taking spiteful, malicious freude or joy with the shodden or damage our persecutors will receive when our just and sovereign God turns the tables on them. And this geography professor is still the same Obadiah who expressed before us the emotion of God's people who cannot know the day or the hour that our vindication will come, but may be certain that it will come. We may be certain that all of life will not be the difficult seasons. Winter will turn into spring and summer and peace. We will one day behold all of our enemies subdued to Christ and our own sinfulness to boot. So Obadiah the geography professor is still Obadiah the hugger, and I promise our Lord still has treasures for us in Christ in these final verses of this vision. Firstly, as we dig into the geography, we get a sense that there is more than just repossession going on here. The southern land does not only repossess its former territory now occupied by Edom, it also takes possession of the bordering Edomite territory. Furthermore, the lowland can be understood as the western part of Judah, a hilly region between the mountains of Judah and the coastal flats. So the Negev and the Shephelah form the southern and the western boundaries of Judah. And this geographical pairing is conceptually loaded language. In Judges 1, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and the lowland. Zechariah 7 hearkens to when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited. In 2 Chronicles, the Philistines had made raids on the cities in the Shephelah and the Negev of Judah, and they settled there after sacking a bunch of cities. So the places and names here hint that the vindication of God's people will in fact one day spill over the borders of their previously experienced persecutions. And the fact that the Philistines are mentioned here serve as an example of not just Edom, but the whole world will be dealt with by God. Ezekiel 25 says, Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines acted revengefully 
and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines. I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them on the day, uh, 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 with wrathful rebukes, and they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Verse 19 <clears throat> mentions, lastly, that Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Now, Benjamin is the northeast of Judah, and east of Benjamin is Gilead, a wooded, lush mountain region extending along the Jabbok River. It's the kind of place that would be great to bring the fam, to pull up a camper, or set up tents along the river and enjoy a vacation from the world. And so fittingly, Zechariah 10 speaks of Gilead as the place in which the returning exiles will establish themselves. Zechariah 10 says, I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and Lebanon till there is no room for them. Gilead will be packed with the returning, world-weary, and yet finally at peace, people of God. Now, if we back up and consider that the, these north, south, east, and west locations, it becomes clear that these are the four points of a compass. They are the four winds in Old Testament imagery. All nations, <clears throat> and, and this, excuse me, compass rose implies totality and even expansion. All nations who act like Cain and Esau and Edom will get their comeuppance. And the unified house of Jacob and Joseph shall repose their former territory and more, expanding on all sides to the north, south, east, and west. God will not only restore, but make things better than they ever had been before. But expansion also implies something more. Would all nations somehow become entangled in the promises of Jacob? Verse 20 gives us, more geography lessons about the return from exile. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. And so for extra fun, we get a difficult translation issue here. Truly, Jerome was right when he said of Obadiah, as short as it is, so it is difficult. Quanto brevis est, tanto difficilis. Commentators ever since then have echoed Jerome's take, and one notably said that its difficulties seem to be in inverse proportion to its size. But while some passages of Scripture are trickier than others, Christians ought to be up for the challenge. God's word is always worth putting our thinking caps on for. So, the first part of verse 20 here would better be translated, the exiles in Chalak, from Israel. There are some textual issues at play here, but a straightforward reason we can sift through the different linguistic views on this is that it keeps the flowing lines of, of parallel intact. So what's the payoff? What's interesting about Chalak? What is worth, what is worth doing extra geography homework for? Well, Shalak is noted in 2 Kings 17 and 18 and 1 Chronicles 5 as a place of exile of the northern Israelites. And it's important because 
it, it was likely the most remote location of the exiles, all the way north of the Mesopotamia. The point here is that God would not forget any of his people. He would gather them from far and wide and from the remotest depths of their dark season without exception. Not one sheep would be lost. Next we learn from verse 20 that Shalak exiles shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. This area stretches out all the way past the northern boundary of Israel and is probably actually named after the original territory of the Canaanites, that is the Philistines, another age-old foe, in a thorn in Israel's side. The Phoenicians also occupied this land at one point, and they too had been a pain in Israel's neck. Zarephath had been a scary place for Israel many times over with Canaanites and Phoenicians and Philistines, oh my. And yet, it would one day be the possession of exiles as far away as Shalak. Isaiah 23 speaks of the Lord stretching out his hand over the sea, shaking the kingdoms, and giving command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And Zephaniah 2 declares, Woe to these enemies whom the Lord is against and will destroy until no inhabitant is left. Verse 20 lastly tells us, The exiles of Jerusalem who were in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Sepharad is also kind of a tricky translation. Most likely this is referring to the Persian province of Sparta and is therefore referring to the Babylonian exiles, which certainly makes sense. Now, that was at least a a, a manuscriptural issue. Excuse me. Now, that was the least manuscriptural issue in the book of Obadiah. Excuse me. That was the last, got tongue-tied there, manuscriptural issue in the book of Obadiah. So we can take a little bit of relief here now. And if some of these complications felt off-putting or less than edifying, I want to put your mind at ease and encourage you with two things. First, verse 20 is the only verse in Obadiah with multiple tricky bits. And thankfully, however, however one takes them, they only expand on and give specifics about Israel's return from exile and her repossession of the land being total and expansive. No doctrine is hinging on verse 20, only which lands from the north, south, east, and west God is giving as an example for Israel to consider when daydreaming in hope of the day that they will be restored better than new. When you think of going home for the holidays, you may daydream about mom's cooking or playing Monopoly with your siblings, but whatever memory takes you home and makes you nostalgic, that's the one that matters. My second encouragement to you has to do with one of my favorite apologetic considerations about the trustworthiness of the Bible and about the the reliability of how the content of the original inspired autographs has made its way to us today. Because a bit of trouble, like in verse 20, is actually a good thing. It highlights how spoiled we are to have thousands of manuscripts of antiquity with virtually no tricky bits of any importance. And just a bit of debate about a verse or two here and there shows that now that no single person or organization 
has ever monopolized control of the scripture's transmission through time. To get an idea for how great this is and how the Bible is the gold standard for the reliability of any ancient text, it's helpful to consider how the Quran is the gold standard for complete unreliability. There is only one ancient manuscript of the Quran because a caliph burned all the rest. He believed having many manuscripts was not a good idea. And I'll tell you a little secret. For Islam, that would not have been a very good thing. There were a few versions of the Quran, and some were hidden away by people who defied the caliph, and those few manuscripts did not jive well at all with the, with the main one they have. They are a mess. The Bible, on the other hand, has so many manuscripts of antiquity that it's clearly a miracle of God's preservation that they agree so incredibly well. And now, the last verse of Obadiah's vision. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This fitting conclusion to the book parallels a theme it opened with. The Lord God is king and the subduer of Jacob's betraying brother Esau. And yet, rather than directly or overtly intervene, the Lord would use the surrounding nations to humiliate Edom and vindicate Jacob. The Lord is also the sovereign king here. But there will be some kind of under-saviors of God's people guided by the true Savior's hand. In the immediate context, this refers to a degree of righteous dominion being restored to the land. But since sovereign kingship and the subduing of our enemies is such a prominent theme, we might expect to see Isaiah speak more clearly about who these saviors are. Who are these servants of the Lord who share in this kingly role? Simply put, the idea here is that these are kings under the great king of the universe. But why doesn't Abadiah just say that then? Well, the ambiguity here actually ensures a certain clarity about the kingly office. It respects that there is only one true sovereign king. There's an interesting pattern that scripture always uses whenever both a king of the line of David and the king of kings are referenced at the same time. Either the Lord will be called king or the line of David, but never both. This rule is applied all over the place in Psalms. And even Ezekiel will call David a prince rather than a king if the Lord is called king in the same thought. This is likely because the Davidic kingship is so closely tied in types and shadows to the kingly office of Christ. It would be a bit like talking about the father and the son as king in the same passage. It's kind of mixing metaphors. In an Old Testament, this is an Old Testament way of respecting the unique work of each person of our triune God. The point Obadiah is getting at here is that while the sovereignty of God as is, is the sovereignty of God as our king, which takes precedence in this context, the providential preservation of the line of the king of David is still a critical aspect of this whole situation, though. The king of kings will ensure that the remnants of Israel scattered to the four winds will not only be restored, but the line of David will also not be lost in the mix. There will still be a steady succession leading to Christ. Without this, their hope 
could not be complete. Their restoration could only be a physical restoration of the land, but not the salvation of their souls. Lastly, because the line of David would be preserved, and because there will be remnants of the nations with the kingdom of God expanded, a hope is implied even for the descendants of Edom and the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Phoenicians and to the ends of the earth. You may recall that in Esau and the world's humiliation, they would be gifted smallness. But this referenced primarily their ability to hurt God's people. Remember, the purpose of Obadiah's vision is to edify Israel in their dark season of exile. The enemies of Jacob would one day never be a problem again for them. You may also recall that spiritually, there's a kind of understanding that Edom and the world are the kingdom of darkness. They are the antithesis of the church, the reprobate. However, as we talked about this morning also, we don't know who the elect or the reprobate are. We are not God, and it is not our job to label our neighbor as beyond hope. Some of us were indeed among those who seemed as if we would never trust in God, and yet here we are. Thankfully for us who were once far off from the promises, the kingdom of our Lord and the new covenant now extends to every tribe and tongue and nation. And that means that some from among the world are numbered among the elect, and yet they have not been revealed to be in Christ. So we evangelize. We balance two truths in this life as Christians. We eagerly await the day of our vindication when the righteous judgment of God finally falls on all of our persecutors. And at the same time, we also pray for our enemies, as Jesus said in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. May we, therefore, hope in the vindication that will come when Jesus returns, but may we also be children of our Father in heaven. May we not reciprocate the schadenfreude of our, en- of our enemies that gloat when calamity befalls us, but instead pray for them and share the Christ who took the cross for those who were his enemies. There are some around us at our workplace, at our schools, driving in the cars next to us and living in the same housing apartments and complexes as us who do not know the Lord as Savior today, but whose names are already written in the book of life. May we have hearts willing to be potentially persecuted, to love our neighbor with the gospel of Christ for his glory. Amen.